0: thank you john uh parents by the way of uh grace kids kids uh just so you know um your kids are going to be returned here uh after the after the service right at the end of the service they'll be brought back to you here so that we can just move pretty quickly into our uh into our uh meeting and if they uh if they disappear on the way somewhere into the bowels of this weird building Oh, well. No, I'm kidding. We will, make sure, we will make sure your kids get back to you. I know you love your kids, mostly. So, All right. Uh, we are in this series, as, uh, as you see in, in, with, the, with the cool graphic and stuff, called Wisdom, Wise Up, Decision-Making, and the Will of God. And a couple of weeks ago, I dropped what I hope felt like a bomb to many of you when I said that there are basically, the Bible tells us that there are basically two wills of God. There is his sovereign will, that is his plan, where he has decided what will happen in history. History is linear, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It is going somewhere, and God is the one who has decided where it is going. That is his plan will, and everything that happens in this universe is part of that plan will. And that God has a moral will, that is what he what he wants from his creatures who are created in his image, in how they are to live and respond to him and be in relationship with him. That's his moral will. Now, his plan will, I said, was secret, right? And it's not something that we can discover uh, beforehand. It's something that we can only discover as it unfolds and His moral will is something that we can have access to anytime we want it, simply by opening His Word. Everything we need for how we are to live. In other words, let me put it this way. If you want to know what God wants from you, in the decisions that you are to make, you can find it right here in the Bible. Now that raises a question, of course well, how do I make decisions in sort of non, non-moral areas? Areas where, where the Bible doesn't speak to what is right and what is wrong in a moral sense. So, for example, this is what I mean. You, you will hear people say things like, and I remember this when I was in university, I may have said it myself, uh, but I know that, I know that I heard friends say this in university, you know, I know... Uh, I know that I chose the right school, that that this is where God wants me to be. Okay? Uh, You hear people say, uh, a couple, maybe they're deciding whether or not to get married, and, and they say, you know, well, we both prayed about it, and we really feel that God is calling us to get married and be in relationship with one another. Or you hear people say things like, uh, I, I've i been really wrestling with this question about what God's will for me is in this job, and uh, I, I believe that that He has called me to this job that I have because I, I have a sense of peace in my heart about the decision to take this job. Or what about today? You know, you've got to vote. Um, maybe you're thinking... Well, God, give, me, give us the wisdom to make the right decision what your will is for us in terms of whether or not Paul should be our pastor. And all of that sounds right, doesn't it? That Talking that way, it sounds right. And, and what's common in all these different kind of phrases and ways of talking is, the, is this idea that, that the key to making the right decision in all of these situations is discerning God's ideal plan for us. And what I've been trying to show you is that actually there's really no biblical warrant for us to talk like that. If you look at the New Testament, for example, you will find no illustration, no example of an apostle, for example, saying that, you know, I just felt the Lord telling me in my heart that I should blah, 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 blah. What you get in the New Testament is you get the apostles saying things like, we thought it best to to do X, or it seemed good to us to do Y, or um, we thought it needful to X, Y, and Z, or it is fitting that we do A, B, C, or D. You never hear them say, I felt God wanted me to do X in my heart, or... Um, we did this because we knew it was God's will, that kind of thing. That's, a, that's actually a modern way of talking about the will of God. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. In the New Testament, like, there was all kinds of examples, or there's not all kinds, maybe, but there's a number of examples of supernatural revelation of God uh, that, that God wanted uh, the apostle to do something, right? So, so Jesus, uh, he revealed himself in a voice and in a bright light to the apostle Paul on his road to Damascus and told him what to do, you know, go find Ananias and, sorry, Ananias, uh, and uh, meet him on Straight Street in that house, etc. There's a place where um, Paul has a vision and he, he, the Holy Spirit gives him a vision where he sees that he is being called, excuse me, to Macedonia to preach the gospel. And yes, so there are examples about that of that, but nobody ever talks about these um, impressions that we have of God's will, or these nudges that we feel to go ahead and do something, as though they are supernatural uh, manifestations of God's revelation. We talk about those things as the normal way that God reveals His will to us. And what I'm saying to you is that the Bible says, if you want to know how to make His decisions, here's how you do it: one, wherever He makes a, co- He gives you a commandment. You obey the commandment. And two, whenever you have a decision to make that doesn't have a moral component to it, it's a non-moral decision, do I buy a Toyota or do I buy a Honda, you are called to exercise freedom and responsibility through the application of wisdom. That's what God wants for us. I know that does not sound as spiritually... uh, Spiritually what? What? in tune or, or just plain as spiritual sounds kind of like rational and you know very reason driven like what are you Paul some kind of engineer sorry all you engineers out there you're just thinking in very logical terms no this is biblical terms what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how you do that how do you exercise Freedom and responsibility in the application of wisdom when it comes to our decision making. decision making, And we're going to start here, because we're going to dig into this over a couple of weeks. How do you get wisdom? What, is, what does wisdom look like? If that's the thing we're supposed to apply to our non-moral decision making, where do we look for it? And we can only scratch the surface both on where to get it, how you get it, and how you apply it. That's all we can do. What I want to do is recommend to you, if you want to know more about how to become a wise person, and I hope you all do, I want to recommend to you a sermon series by Tim Keller called "True Wiz- Proverbs True Wisdom for Living. Proverbs True Wisdom for Living. You can download them all. I think there's like 20 of them. There's at least 10 of them. Uh, It is a remarkable sermon series. It is deep and profound, and it's the kind of thing that you can listen to them all, every sermon, each four or five times, and you'll always pick up something new from from each of them. Uh, And, you know, if I ever become wise enough to actually preach a series like that, I might give it a try, but I don't think I'm nearly qualified for it, so I'm sending you on to him. Um, But you will hear a bit of echo in what i'm about to say from that series and i want to make uh give credit where credit is due so what we're going to do today uh, is we're going to do four things we're going to define wisdom we're going to think of the value of wisdom we're going to see how what what is the foundation of wisdom and then we're going to talk about the pursuit of wisdom those four things in brief let's go and have a look together so first of all definition of wisdom Who wrote this text? Most scholars believe that most of the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon. King Solomon, son of King David, uh, who when you go back into the history of Solomon, you discover in 1 Kings 3 that he was a young man. He had been placed on the throne and given all this responsibility to lead the people of God. And God came to him and said, Ask of me whatever you want and I will give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom. And God said to him, well, because you didn't ask for riches, uh, because you didn't ask to, uh, you know, destroy all your enemies, I am not just going to give you wisdom. I am going to give you so much wisdom that uh, there will be no person like you before who has been before you or like, or after you in terms of your application of wisdom. And what that shows us is that wisdom isn't just moral thinking because if Solomon had asked if if Solomon had asked for wisdom and wisdom was just you know knowing what is right and wrong in any decision that you would make Solomon wouldn't need God to grant him wisdom God could have just said to him go read the Torah Go read the scriptures. I have given you what you need in terms of what is morally right and morally wrong, and you can find it all right there. So moral goodness is not the heart of wisdom. What is it then? It includes moral goodness, but it's certainly more than moral goodness. J.I. Packer, he's passed away, but he is a wonderful Anglican scholar uh, of the 21st, 20th century. He gives an excellent definition of wisdom, and he puts it this way. He says that wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the highest and best goal along with the surest means of attaining it. Let me say it one more time for those of you who like to take notes. It is the power to see and the inclination to choose the highest and best goal with the surest way of attaining it. In other words, it's it's. It's knowing the best way to achieve the desired result. And that's not always easy to figure out. Perfect example is a worldwide pandemic. The highest and best goal in this worldwide pandemic is probably to overcome the pandemic. Get out of it. Be safe so that no, nobody's at risk and nobody's dying from COVID-19 any longer. That's the highest and best goal. But what's what's the way of achieving that? How do we, how do we know the highest and best way of doing that that takes the application of wisdom so in other words being wise is knowing what to do and how to do it in the majority of decisions where you know the moral rules don't actually apply what to do and how to do it in the majority of decisions where the moral rules don't actually apply so that's a definition of wisdom now Proverbs tells us that this ability to do that is supremely valuable, and this is uh, found here in verses uh, 13 through 18. Wisdom, Solomon says, is better than anything else. Look at verses 13 through uh, <clears throat> sorry, 13 through 15. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. Why? For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies, verse 15. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Now think about this. What are we typically doing? Desirous of what are we? What are we spending most of our time and most of our energy uh, seeking to achieve now? I don't say this negatively. I just say that this is the way things are in our world. Probably the thing that we are seeking to achieve is some form of sort of financial freedom or financial success. So, so we're in school and we're trying to get good grades. And, and if we get good grades, then we can get into the right program in university. And then when we get into the right program in university, then we work really hard at it so that when we graduate, we have this good resume so that we can get a good job. And then when we're in that job, we work very hard at that job so that we can climb our way up the ladder this is this is the way the world works and so much of our time and energy is spent chasing thinking about how to achieve financial stability and financial success and here is the book of proverbs saying don't spend the the vast majority of your time and energy trying to chase that spend it trying to chase wisdom it is valuable over absolutely everything else. Why is it so profoundly valuable? I mean, we're, we think that Bitcoin and Platinum, I think, are the two most valuable things on, on, on Earth right now. Back then, it was stuff like rubies. I could go into why rubies are chosen and why gold and silver are chosen. But the, pro, the, the, the author is, exp, is picking these items because they are supremely valuable as in terms of material things on this Earth. And he's saying that actually this this concept of wisdom is way, 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 way more valuable. Why? Look at verse 16. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Verse 17. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. Verse 18. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. Now, think about this. Let's think about this. The best of life, Solomon says. The very things that people are chasing financial success for. A stable life. A good quality of life. A happy life. A peaceful life. All those things that we are after are achievable not actually through pursuing financial success. They're actually achievable through, through pursuing wisdom. Now, understand something. This is not a one to one correlation. You've got to remember when you're reading the book of Proverbs, you can never take it as a one to one correlation. It's not like, if I do this, then for me, this will happen. No, this is an explanation about the design of God's world and how it generally works. Because there are people around the world who work very, very hard at applying wisdom and seeking wisdom. Etc. and their lives are still full of turmoil. But the general principle at work is, is that as you pursue wisdom, the very things that you want out of life, those things become available to you. In verse 17, notice it says, all her paths are peace. This is a particular Hebrew word called shalom. And it doesn't mean, you know, the sense of inner peace, nothing ever bothers me. I'm always chilling out and relaxed and, you know, going with the flow and just, peace man it's not like that peace means the conditions within the world that enable human flourishing that's shalom the way things were meant to be this is why wisdom is so valuable you see what he's trying to say is he's trying to say the very things that you want you think are achieved through pursuing these earthly goods which are good But as you want those things and try to achieve them through these earthly goods, you actually are missing out on them. You need to seek wisdom to achieve those things. That's why it's so valuable. Okay. Third thing. All right. Well, where do we start then? What's the foundation of wisdom? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Famous verse. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Fear of the Lord. You know, the fear of the Lord, that is a a phrase that you will hear all over the Bible. And in the book of Proverbs, it is very closely tied to wisdom itself. So, for example, uh, Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, You go a little further in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 2 verse 5, it says, let me read that one for you as well. You will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's 2 verse 5. 9 verse 10 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then chapter 15 verse 33 says. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord. And humility comes before honor. All throughout the book of Proverbs, you have this connection between this thing called the fear of the Lord and the attainment of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom starts, it is the beginning, it is the foundation. What does that mean? What is the fear of the Lord? And and I know when I was a kid, certainly, you know, I I mean, I heard about the fear of the Lord. And it's on the cornerstone of I don't know how many churches and Christian day schools and stuff. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I was always like, what does that mean? I I just, fear to me always meant, well, you're afraid of something. So, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to, you want to know how you get wise? The first place you go to get wise is you be scared of God. That's how you learn to be wise. You go, man, there's a God up there and he is mad most of the time and he's got his eye on you watching to see if you step out of line and if you recognize that and you always live in fear of condemnation, you will become wise. That's kind of how I understood it. But what I've come to realize is that that's rarely how the fear of the Lord is actually described in the Bible. In the Bible, the fear of the Lord refers to reverence of God. It refers to seeing God as the most real reality. As ultimate reality. Or or let me put it this way. God is the absolutely most important thing in your life. To have the fear of the Lord is to stand in awe of God. To be in wonder of who He is and what He has done for you. It is to love Him with your whole heart. And you know how we know this? Because we see this is how many of the Bible's great characters are described. In Genesis chapter 22... Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain because God has said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac for me. And in verse 12, just before Abraham is about to, you know, stick his son with the knife, all of a sudden God says, stop, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son your only son. And in that passage, what God is saying is, I've, you've shown me, Abraham, that, that I am more valuable to you than even your own flesh and blood. That you love me and cherish me more than even your own flesh and blood. In Job, uh, the book of Job, you'll remember at the very, perhaps you'll remember, at the very beginning of the book of Job, Satan comes to God. It's this very strange Scene where Satan comes to God and God and Satan have a, have a conversation. At one point, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And perhaps most remarkably is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Do you know who that's about? That's a prophecy about someone. I bet you somebody can yell it out. Come on, any Sunday school kid would nail this, people. Let's go. Jesus. Jesus jesus had the fear of the lord come on yes jesus this is obviously about jesus let me read it again so that you can be amazed by this the spirit of the lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the lord and he will delight in the fear of the lord who loved god who delighted in being in relationship with the father more than anyone who has ever lived it's his own son right this is about jesus who delighted in obeying his Father. He said, my food, this is John chapter 3, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. What Proverbs is saying, friends, is that what you think about God determines how you think about everything else. That's why wisdom is the, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you delight in God? Do you fear him? Do you love him? Do you cherish him? If you do, then you can start to be wise. If you don't, you can't. Psalm 14 verse one says, "The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." Whoa. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? Proverbs says, "You want to be wise? You have to start with cherishing God above everything else. If you don't, you simply cannot be wise. You can be very knowledgeable. You can be very smart. You can have lots of insights into how the world works and have a profound intellect. You can be, you can be Einstein and Stephen Hawking put together. But if you do not acknowledge God, you cannot be wise. Now, why is that? Because your religious beliefs, friends shape your answers to the most fundamental questions in life. And your answers to the most fundamental questions in life inform the specific decisions that you make. We see an example of that actually right here in our text. In verses 9 and 10, it says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Proverbs is saying, give your money away. Be profoundly generous, and you will be rich. That's basically what it's saying. Be super generous. And we're not talking about, you know, the average Canadian gives $500 a year to charity. No, no, no. We're talking about give sacrificially so that you are limiting your own lifestyle as a result and occasionally you get a letter from the CRA saying we need to audit you because it doesn't make sense that someone who makes so much you make gives away that much. That's the kind of giving that Proverbs is talking about. This is audit-worthy Generosity. And the reason is, is because no earthly treasures are worth what God has given us in Jesus Christ. And you honor God when you are generous. You kill greed in yourself. You kill covetousness in yourself. When you do that, when you get your heart off material gain, then God says, again, look at verse 10, "...your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine." You will be cared for by God in ways that you could not have anticipated, you could not have imagined. it. Here's, here's what Proverbs is saying. If you love money too much, it will lead to overwork, it will lead to becoming overconfident about the power of money in your life to make you happy. It may lead to ethical compromise in your life. It leads to the breakdown of community. And what happens is, is when you value money too much, you become stupider and stupider in your, even your economic decisions over time. And so the irony here is, is that when you break the power of money in your life, you start to make smarter and smarter economic decisions. This is the biblical law of giving, okay? Now, if you believe in God, this will make sense to you. Because you believe that God created everything, that God owns everything, that the cattle on a thousand hills are His, that every dollar that you possess is actually on loan from Him. He's given it to you to steward and to use well, but it's ultimately His, and you were given it to be used, to use it for His glory. We have some, I will tell the story eventually, I promise you, but we have some crazy donors to our church purchase who have donated tons of money to our church purpose. purchase. Sorry. They get this principle, this weird biblical principle that says, if you are radically generous and give money away, I am going to bless you and I am going to... This is not prosperity gospel. Remember, it's not one-to-one, guys. Don't say, "Uh uh-huh, I know, I want to be rich, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give money away, and that's how I'll get rich. (laughs) But think of the gospel itself, guys. Think of the gospel itself. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice of a supremely generous God. Jesus emptied himself of all his riches and all his glory and all his majesty. He emptied himself of all that to pay our infinite debt. And the payoff was what? We don't even know exactly what it means. But there is a place in John where where Jesus says the Father loves the Son and has given given all things into his hands. The entire universe and everything in it is his inheritance. Because of his willingness to sacrifice entirely and give up everything to make us his children. We are valuable to him like nothing else. We're, that, we're the pinnacle, the, 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 the top, the, the the cherry on top of the inheritance that Jesus gets. Now you will only understand that if you have the fear of the Lord. Like this sounds crazy. You go to your non-Christian accountant and say, you know, I want to give away $10. 15 20 percent of my income and they say well what about your retirement goals you say well yeah i want to retire but you know i I, if it takes a little longer whatever god will god will take care of it and and he or she will look at you and say god will take care of it like that's not a plan and you will say yes it is and they will not understand it because they don't live out of the fear of the lord Rick Warren's book, I haven't even read it, but it's very famous, The Purpose Driven Life. First chapter, his first sentence is, it's not about you, is bang on. See, the fear of the Lord is basically realizing that you're not God, but He is. And you don't live for your glory, but you live for His. But when you do that, then you become wise. I could go on and on and on, but... I hope you get the picture. Okay, how do we pursue it? I'm going to go very quickly here because we've got things to do as well, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 7. Here's how you get wisdom. Here's how you get the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 7. It says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. You know how you start becoming wise? You know how you start fearing the Lord? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Acknowledge your foolishness acknowledge that you're not wise. See, look at verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him or submit to Him and He will make your paths straight. See, the fool does the opposite of what verses 5 and 6 says. The fool says, I got figure it figured out. I know what to do. I, I I, think I got this. I know what to do. I know what to say. I I, got, I think I got this. That is the height of foolishness. Fools cannot admit they're fools. That's what makes them fools. They trust in their own understanding and they, do, they refuse to submit to him in all their ways and therefore their paths don't go straight. Their paths go crooked. That's what Proverbs is saying. So the first thing is that you have to admit your foolishness. We can't admit our foolishness. That we are flawed, that we are weak, that we are sinful, that we don't know. It's bad for our ego, right? You don't, no psychologist, well, maybe there are psychologists, but but rarely is someone going to tell you to look in the mirror every morning and start the day by going, you're an idiot. Just remember, you're kind of a fool. You are utterly dependent on the wisdom of God and others. You do not have this, self. That's not how you go into your interview. That's not how you go into your exam. You're supposed to stand in the mirror and look at it and say, you've got this, you're smart, you're articulate, you're the man, you've thought about this, you can do it! That's what you're told to do. It's bad for the ego to start your day saying, I don't got this. And that's why the only way you can do this is by listening to Proverbs 3, verse, what? Three, (laughs) Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now when you read that, you think, I got to be loving and faithful. That's what i got to be. But that's not exactly what Proverbs is getting at. In fact, it's very unlikely because it says, write them on the tablet of your heart. Which, if you really know your Old Testament Bible very well, you'll remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God tells the people of Israel to do this. To write His law on the tablets of their heart. and And to write... What on the tablet of your heart? Love and faithfulness. What does that mean? Well, then you got to really know your Bible well. And you got to remember Exodus chapter 34, where Moses asks God to show him his glory. And God says, if I show you my face, it'll kill you. I'm too brilliant, too beautiful. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll come by, and I'll reveal myself to you. Just You can just look at my back. And so he does this, and God... God passes by Moses, and while he passes by Moses, he reveals his nature to Moses. And what does he say? He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate one, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. Here's the point to be wise, friends is to remember God's character as one who is loving and compassionate and gracious and faithful that he is devoted to you. It is to pound the gospel deep inside your heart. That's how you bind his love and faithfulness to you. When you think you suck, you remind yourself that despite all of that, Jesus delights in you and was willing to die for you and he knew that about you and he hung on that cross despite you because you are precious to him. And that when you are faithless, he is forever faithful because that is his nature. That is his character. He is not like you, fickle about your relationship with God or your relationship with others. He is always a steady rock in whom you can find your refuge and your strength. And so you work it in. So that you can do the ruthless self-evaluation that admits you're weak and flawed and scared and don't know what to do. When you're making decisions about your family or decisions about your romantic life or decisions about your, your financial future and you're not sure what to do, you can start with asking for wisdom, as James says, because you can admit that you're not wise outside of God's counsel. But that's okay. Because he delights in you anyway. Hymns, Bible reading, memorization, write poetry, journal it, listen to sermons, pound that into your heart. Then you can admit you're not wise. It doesn't crush your ego, you see. Because now you know who you are as you know who he is. And that makes you able to become wise. Let's pray. Father, we're just beginning this practical work of unpacking how to become wise, but we are learning, Father, that it all begins with acknowledging that you are God, that we are not, that you delight in us, despite our weaknesses and our foolishness and our hard heartedness, that you you commit to us, even when we are so non-committal toward you. Help us to start there. Help us to see that your love and faithfulness will never leave us. So that we can admit we desperately need you. And that will make us people who can be free of all the things that that cause us to make foolish decisions. We'll talk more about what those are next week. But in the meantime, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his wisdom and his love. In his name we pray, amen.